Yesterday I, I went to see um, a rugby match, which was excellent. It was live, it was here at, at, uh, at uh, Twin Elm, and me and Enya went, and we watched Canada play Russia. And uh, I love rugby, but I also love football. Now, when I say football, I mean soccer, and I don't mean American football or Canadian football. When I say football, I'm talking about a round ball, not an egg-shaped ball. When I say football, I'm talking about a game that's played with feet and not with hands. Now, I know that if I was to come up to you and say, let's go play a game of football, that you're going to misunderstand me. And so I clarify, I usually tag on the end, you, you know, soccer. And maybe you're here thinking, well, Dan, you're in Canada now. You should adapt to our way of doing things. We call it soccer, so you should call it soccer. But much as I love my adopted home of Canada, I want to remind myself and my girls that we also have another home in Wales. And this is a simple way for me to remind myself and them. But what happens is, or what happened is that last week I found out that Maya has started referring to soccer as football at school. And the teacher started to maybe correct her. Because I think she thinks that Maya is a bit confused. But little does the teacher know that this isn't a seven-year-old using the wrong noun. This is a seven-year-old mounting a quiet revolution. (laughs) And who knows, perhaps this revolution might catch on. Maybe Maya's friends will start referring to soccer as football. And when they grow up, they will teach their kids that soccer is called football. And maybe one of these friends might uh, go into public office and maybe even one day become prime minister. And this prime minister might initiate a referendum to officially change the name of soccer to football. And then Canadian football will be known as Canadian throwball. And the CFL will then be known as the CTL. And then life as we know it will have been forever changed, all because of this quiet revolution that began in the Wallace household in North Gore in 2018. This is my prayer and this is my dream. And together we can make it a reality. This is our third week looking at Mark's account of Jesus, Messiah. We've learned that that Messiah is the Hebrew word that means chosen one or anointed one, one that has been set apart. It means that Jesus came to earth for a specific purpose and that even with all of the good stuff that he did, the healings and the miracles, there was one purpose that underpinned it all and that purpose is Mark chapter 10 verse 45. In fact, let's read Mark chapter 10 verse 45 all together. Ready? 3, 2, 1. Here we go. For, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the reason that Jesus was set apart for, to lay down his life. Now, if someone came up to your door and they told you that they were a police officer, what's one of the first things that you might say? I think it might be something on the lines of, could you show me some identification? And what is ID? What is identification? It is the stamp of approval of the governing authorities. It's not enough for this person at your door to say, I am a police officer. This police officer or so-called police officer needs to also show you the badge. 
And so it's all well and good for Jesus to think of himself as the Messiah or to refer to himself in that way. But usually people who were messiahs ended up, end up either in a padded cell um, or orchestrating mass suicides. It's not a good thing. There are many false messiahs. So it's not enough for Jesus just to say that he's the messiah. He also needs identification. And last week we learned that there were numerous authorities who identified Jesus as Messiah. So we looked at prophecy, we looked at uh, John the Baptist, we looked at God himself, the Father and and the Holy Spirit, there at the banks of the Jordan. We looked at Satan, uh, we looked at Jesus himself, who understood that he was the Messiah, and we learnt that those four people who started to, who left their jobs, left their livelihoods and came after him, they saw that there was something special about him. They identified him as who he said he was. So what we have right now in your mind's eye is Jesus is standing in front of your door and he's holding up his badge and it says Jesus Messiah on the badge. Now let's leave Jesus there at the door and let's, uh, and let, and let's go back to imagining that there's a police officer in front of your door. Uh, he's shown you his identification and you're confident that he is in fact a police officer he then says to you i was passing by your house and i saw that i saw that there is uh, a man with a gun upstairs in your house i saw through the window now there's no time for me to call for backup but i want you to come outside so that i can go inside and so that i can take him down is that okay and so you look at the police officer and you say to him Hold on a sec. My kids are upstairs. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if, if I was in that situation, the first thing I would want to ask him is, Officer, you might have the credentials, but do you have what it takes? Are you able to do this? Are you able to take him down without losing the lives of my kids? And so you ask him this. It's a very legitimate, normal question. And it's almost like he anticipates this question because he whips out his smartphone and he shows you a series of short amateur videos, uh, really impressive uh, drug busts, um, really amazing takedown operations. There's one which shows a building exploding with him walking away with one person over one shoulder and another person over the other shoulder. Uh, There's one with him him parkouring up the side of a building and apprehending a fugitive. There's one that shows him um, off duty and he sees these thugs mugging a woman and he goes and he takes them down and hands her handbag back to her. He then shows you a series of photos of him receiving um, really important commendations uh, from the police chief, from the mayor. And after looking at his credentials and watching these short movies and photos that show exactly what his track record looks like, you decide to let him in. Now, today we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 45. It's a lot, and so we won't get through everything, and we'll be skimming a lot, uh, but what we will see that is that it's not just the credentials that Christ has. It's not just a badge, but he has a track record as well of what he has done throughout history and therefore what Jesus is able to do in your life. And so my hope is that after seeing these short 
movies of what, what, of what Christ has done is that you will feel more ready to welcome him right into your life so that he can do what he needs to. Let's uh, start reading at verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus said, be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Last week... Uh, we left Christ on the shore of the Galilee. It's a, it's a freshwater lake. He's just called Peter and Andrew and James and John. And now we're in Capernaum. This is a settlement on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's larger than Nazareth. It's a good place for him to have a ministry base. It's, n- it's now Saturday and Jesus is there in the synagogue. Synagogues aren't the same as the temple, because the, the temple is over in Jerusalem. But synagogues were a bit like a religious community center. So if there was a rabbi or a teacher passing by, usually what would happen is that the leaders of the synagogue would ask him to come and share with them and to uh, really engage with the local Jews. Um, so as a recognized rabbi, Jesus is invited. And as we read in verse 22, it says, The people were amazed because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. What does this mean? Simply this, that the teachers of the law had no authority in themselves. Their authority came to them from the Hebrew scriptures. But this rabbi, Jesus, was completely different. He had authority in and of himself. It's the same as, you know, the prime minister who has authority in and of himself versus his spokesperson um, who only has authority as it's handed down from the Prime Minister. So Jesus had authority. He didn't only teach the Word of God, he was the Word of God. And on this Saturday in Mark chapter 1, the Word is there in the synagogue. Jesus is in, is in the synagogue and he, he oozes authority. He couldn't help it. He was the Messiah and people were hanging on his every word. What do you want with us, Dan Wallace of Wales? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. That's what happened in the synagogue. The good Jews were in the synagogue, just like you're sat here today, when all of a sudden, one of the people there that they knew stood up and shouted, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Not Dan Wallace of Wales, but Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, we can assume that just like Nathan, 
that this man who shouted out in the middle of the synagogue, let's call him Ishmael Cohen, which is not his real name, but, but that this guy, Ishmael Cohen, was a regular attender. Everyone knew who he was, and that probably no one even noticed that there was anything wrong with him. But now, with the presence of Messiah so close, that spirit which has been plaguing him suddenly manifests and he shouts out. Now, we're not talking about psychological illness. We're not talking about a medical complaint. We're talking about an actual evil spirit, one of Satan's minions who knows that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is God's son, that he is the God-man. And so he identifies... So if you look in verse, um, if you look in verse twenty-four, he identifies Jesus as being from Nazareth, which means he knows that Jesus is human, but he also calls him the Holy One of God, which means he recognizes that Jesus is God. He is God and man, and this is what the Spirit sees Jesus, and he recognizes this straight away. And then, and then Jesus says to him. You be quiet and you leave that man. And this, and, this, and this spirit, this impure spirit, which had plagued, which had contaminated Ishmael for so many years, came tearing out of him violently with a shriek. Now, you can imagine after that, if that happened here today, you would not be interested in the rest of the sermon. Because that would be the sermon, and that's probably how it was here. This amazing thing happened, and people were just struck dumb. Sermon was over. That was the sermon. They could see that that the mighty power of God was resting on this rabbi, Yeshua, this rabbi, Jesus. And then we move on to verse 25, um, which which is more or less a repetition of what we've already read in verse 22. Um... No, sorry, verse 27, uh, it, it says this. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? So we've already heard that. This is a repetition. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. So it's the same as what we've already heard, except for this extra insight. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. So my... My question for you, my question for me, is this. Whether we believe that we still serve the same God now, who did that then? That this Messiah, that he could do in our midst what he did then. Now, I believe he is able to do this. I've been in parts of the world uh, where this show, this power, this show of power from God is a lot more normal than it is here. Um, you know, I've, I've served in some countries where there is no hope for someone except that God does a miracle in their life, that he heals, that he um, rescues them. Uh, there was this one time while I was serving on the missionary ship Logos Hope. We were in the, we were in the Philippines. And at that moment of time, um, I remember being much more aware of spiritual warfare than I am here on any given week. I don't usually think about it necessarily, but then it was so much more real. Um, you could almost feel it. There was one night where I was called out from the ship, um, kind of as a, as a fast response team, because... because because one team had called and said that there were evil manifestations in the area where they were. And so I went out there 
you know, driving in a car, feeling quite nervous, feeling rather out of my depth. You know, I think here in Canada, it's to Satan's advantage for him to go more undercover, to hide, um, to maybe convince us that he's not real. But I know that in other parts of the world, Satan knows that it's to his advantage that he convinces people that he is real and that he's super, super powerful. But the truth of the matter, as we see here, is that regardless of how Satan and his, how strong Satan and his minions are, Jesus is stronger. He is mighty. And so Jesus casts out this this impure spirit. This man is free and, and therefore Christ is, is revealed as someone who teaches with authority and even has the power to order evil spirits out of someone. This is Jesus Messiah. But what I want you to hear is this, is that Jesus' miracles were the groundwork for the true miracle of his message. Then what, what happens after this is that they move out of, out of this, uh, this, this moment, in, moment in the synagogue. And I expect that Christ is hungry. Um, and so he goes over to the house of Simon, Peter and Andrew, where he goes and he heals Simon's mother-in-law of a fever by laying his hands on her. And we read that in verse 30. Simon's mother-in-law was in was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on him. Now, what we see here is that Mark is trying to paint a picture of the Messiah that resists all of the boxes that we try to make around him. Okay, so, so first we see Jesus healing there in the synagogue in public with lots of folks around him. And now we see Jesus healing in privacy, in the privacy of someone's own home. Um, we, we, we saw just now Jesus casting out a spirit, but now we see Jesus healing a fever. Then we, we, we saw Jesus healing by speaking words of power. He said it and the spirit came out, but now we see Jesus healing by his hand resting on someone. So we like to think sometimes that we have the last word on God, that we've worked it all out, that we, we know exactly how he is, um, how he works, how he functions, but then what God does over and over again is that he, he breaks out of these and he does something new. And so what we see here is, is, is that just as Jesus had authority over the evil spirits, he also had authority over physical ailments. And, and what this means is that Jesus can heal them. And in the case of Peter's mother-in-law, in his grace, he heals her. He took her hand, it says, and he helps her up and says the fever left her and she began to, to wait on them. And I find that little thought shoved there in the middle of scripture lovely that she began to wait on them. Jesus touches her and her first response is how can I serve? He heals her and her first thought is what can I do? And how true is that of us? If we've experienced the healing touch of Christ on our lives then our natural response is to say to him how can I serve? How can I serve you? And so, 
Maybe the key question here from this is that if Jesus has healed you, if Jesus has saved you, how can you serve Jesus in a way that shows the healing that he has worked in you? How are you serving Jesus in a way that shows the healing that he has worked in you? Now, I remember last year we had this sign in North Gore on the corner of Roger Stevens and Fourth Line, and this sign said, No tractors allowed, and it was a big deal. You know, folks were quite frustrated about it. But it wasn't long until that message that there was this sign in North Gore, which is a farming. You know, it's a farming place with this no tractor sign. It wasn't long until Scott Moffat heard that message and he went down there. And I actually watched him do this. He grabbed that sign and he pushed it onto the ground. It was awesome. And kind of made me want to go, yeah, but I didn't. But what that shows me is that in a community like ours, news travels super fast. There's, there's no way to hold on to it once it's out. You know, you aren't able to get it back in. And it was the same in Jesus' day. Even without Instagram and Facebook and phone and etc., etc., words got around super fast. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. You wouldn't believe what happened to Ishmael Cohen at the synagogue today. Word went around like wildfire. And then, there, and then, there's, then there's Peter's mother-in-law who's sharing with her neighbours about he, how she went from sickness to service in an instant... Incredible stuff. And so by the evening, the town of Capernaum was full of the news of Christ. Because what people were thinking is this. If Jesus can do this for Ishmael and for Peter's mother-in-law, maybe he could do it for my son, for my daughter, for my granddaughter, for my neighbor. Maybe Jesus can do it for me. Which is why in verse 32, we have this wonderful image of the whole town pressing into Jesus' door with those who were sick, those who were ill, and those who were possessed. They all want in on this. This is exciting. This is new. And so with this noise at the door, you know, of all these people hammering on the door, let us in, let us in. We want to see Jesus. Jesus packs up the Scrabble game that he was playing with the disciples. And of course, he was winning because he knows exactly how to use all the best words and, you know, how to put them on the triple words goal. And so the disciples were probably happy at that moment. So they folded up the Scrabble. He opens the door and he lets them in. And one after the other, like some kind of a supernatural dropping clinic, all these people come in and he heals them and he heals them and he heals them. Verse 34. And it says, And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. He would not let them speak because they knew who he was. Word was out in the demon world. After, after Satan lost there in the wilderness, um, we know that Jesus' wanted poster was up on every available space in Satan's realm. And then after the exorcism of Ishmael Cohen at the synagogue, we, we know that the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. He was Jesus of Nazareth, who was also the Holy One of God. He was the God-man. But now Jesus, he puts a gag order on them because they knew who he was. And this thing, this, this whole concept of Jesus keeping his... Um, Jesus hiding who he was, Jesus being secretive, this is known as the messianic secret. 
But why keep it a secret? Why not just tell everyone, you know what, what those, what, what those spirits are saying? That's true, I am the Messiah. I think that the reason is, in short, because Messiah meant many different things to many different people. So, like, like I said earlier, if I say let's go play, if, if I say let's go play football, you're thinking one thing, I'm thinking a completely different thing. I'm thinking of round balls you kick with your feet, you're thinking of egg-shaped balls that you throw with your hands. I'm thinking of Ottawa Fury, you're thinking of the Ottawa Red Blacks. Uh, so, so the spirits were counting on people misunderstanding what they said when they said that Jesus was Messiah, was the Holy One of God. Uh, what the demons were counting on was sowing real, real confusion by actually telling the truth. Okay, because if because if 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 they could convince Jesus was Messiah in the way that people understood Messiah, then what folks would think is that Jesus has power to free people here on earth, whether it's from sickness or spirits or the might of the Roman Empire. But that's as far as as his role goes. That's as far as his messiahship actually goes. Because people misunderstood what M- Messiah meant. They, they would misunderstand what his purpose was. Uh, because the truth and the larger picture which we understand now is that Jesus Messiah, the servant king, came to earth not to bring the short-term gain, uh, short-term gain of freedom um, from sickness or spirits or from the Romans, but for the long-term, never-ending gain of spiritual freedom. He came to overthrow Satan's empire, not a human empire. He came not to lead others to this mighty victory, but to lay down his life. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the thing, and here's why Jesus uh, said to them not to say who he was at that moment. Because without the cross... The true meaning of Jesus' messiahship could never be understood. This is why it's at the cross, it's at the foot of the cross, that we get the the sharpest and the keenest insight into who Jesus is. Not the miracle maker or the troublemaker or a political revolutionary or a wise teacher, not the rabbi, but the son of God. It's there at the cross that we see that, and it's a grizzled Roman soldier who was actually part of the problem that the people wanted to be saved from who saw this. As we read in Roman, uh, Mark 15, verse 39, it says this, And when the centurion who was there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. He saw that in retrospect. And so it's as we see Jesus died, as we look back, we can see what Messiah means. It's it's on the cross that we see this central, this sole focus of Jesus' mission, which is to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Satan would love us to reach the conclusion that Jesus is about handing us our best life now. And so what the demons would have said would have been true, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but people would have misunderstood. 
And so rather than give people an incomplete picture of the Messiah, what Jesus does is he slaps some duct tape on the demons' mouths and he says, shush. And this is also why in verse 38 or verse 37, it says this. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. This is his moment where, where he can go out and meet those crowds and do something amazing. It says this, um, everyone is looking for you. Jesus' response in verse 38 is this, let us go somewhere else. Let us go to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. This crowd is primed and ready for him. They're, they are there. You know, those fields were white unto harvest. And Jesus goes, okay, let's move on. This is why, because they would have misunderstood what he was about. Because his true mission can only be understood in the shadow of the cross. You see, these miracles which he did, it was the groundwork to prepare them for the true miracle of the message of the gospel. That's what they were all about. The message of the gospel was less impressive but more important than the miracles. And then again in verse 44, we see Jesus telling someone who has just been healed miraculously and Jesus uh, slaps a gag order on him as well and he says, see that you don't tell anyone else. But he does. And so Jesus is exposed And so he moves on again. You see, these miracles, this healing, what Jesus did over and over again was supposed to be a means to an end. But people wanted to see it as an end in itself. Um, So so when we see Jesus healing uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, what this shows is that Jesus has power over the physical realm, which means he has ultimately power over death itself. And when Jesus heals this guy that we call Ishmael Cohen, of the demon who is inside of him, what this shows is that Jesus has power over the spiritual realm and ultimately over Satan himself. So when it came time for Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus would need both this mighty power over the physical realm so that he could rise again, so that he could have power over death, and he needed power over the spiritual realm over Satan. The miracles lay the groundwork for the true miracle of the message. And this message we read in verse 15 of chapter 1, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That is the true miracle. That is what Jesus wanted all these these miracles to actually point, um, because Jesus came to preach the gospel. Jesus was the gospel. He was the good news. And so he wanted to say to them, so what Satan wanted was for folks was for folks to say, look what Jesus look look what he did for me. He 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 healed me. That's what Satan wanted people to think and to stop at. But what God wanted to do was to say, if he can do this for you physically, imagine what he can do for you spiritually. If he can do that for you uh, here on earth in a temporary way, think of what he can do with you forever and ever and ever. Eternal healing. Eternal miracles. Last week, 
Jesus showed us that he had a badge. He had identification. And this week, Jesus has picked up that cell phone or that smartphone and he's shown us his, 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 his record of what he's, he is able to do. And he wants us to listen and to really take notice. But once he has our attention from all this stuff and the shrieks and the healing and the fever and everything, once he has our attention, he tells us this most amazing news ever that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what this means is that Jesus lived the life, the life of holiness, that you in your sinful state will never live. And what this means is that Jesus, he died your death, that, that, that wiped out anything that you owed God. He wiped it out absolutely completely. And then it means that Jesus rose again to show that he has power over death and Satan himself. So Jesus did these miracles to prepare people for a message that in Jesus the kingdom of God has come near, as we read in verse 15, that in Jesus you can repent, that you can turn around, that you can have a brand new start, a brand new life, that in, that in Jesus, as we read in verse 15, that you can believe the good news. That is why he came. Let me close by sharing with you a story of a hopeless case of a man who slowly watched maybe parts of the body fall off his fingers and his nose, who watched himself rot away, who had been cast away from friends and from family. This is what leprosy did, as we read in verse 40 onwards. It moved you away from those who you loved and it left you in a very lonely place. And isn't that what happens with sin? Sin really isolates us. It leads us away from those whom we love. It leaves us feeling unclean because we are unclean. And so, and, and so after the healing of the man in the synagogue of spiritual oppression, after the miracle of bringing Peter's mother-in-law from sickness to active service, after healing many people who came to his house, we're left with this one man who comes to Jesus on his knees and he's absolutely begging, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What he's saying is that Jesus is his last hope. And then it says, not in NIV, but in another translation, it says Jesus was moved with, with compassion. And then it says that Jesus reached out his hand and he touched this unclean man. He touched that man who was, who was in, the, in, the, in that culture there. Was, no one would go near them. And Jesus touched him. And Jesus said five words. He said, I am willing. He said, be clean. Five words, five words of hope. Five words that change this unnamed man's story forever. And the only difference between this man and you and I is that this man wore his uncleanness on the outside for everyone to see. But you and I, we do our best. We work so hard to keep our isolating sin secret and hidden. But still Jesus reaches out his hand and he's ready to touch you. 
He's ready to say, I am willing. You be clean. And these five words are the miracle of the message of the gospel. This is, this is the true miracle. I am willing. You, you be clean. And so I strongly believe that Jesus still does miracles, that he still casts out spirits. Um, and, and I believe that the only reason that he does these cool things Things that would absolutely blow your mind is because he wants to grab your attention to hear the most amazing miracle of all, that he loves you. That he's moved with, with compassion. And, and that movement is not one of revulsion away from you, but it's one closer to you, closer to you. That Jesus is willing that in him you can be clean. And so my encouragement at the end of this service uh, you know, as we sing this next song, is for you to take Jesus up on his wonderful offer that his, that his nail-pierced, outstretched hand is here, ready for you. And as you say to him what he already knows, that you're a sinner who's messed up countless times, as you turn away from that sin, as you let his cleansing flow through you, he will transform you. He will make you clean.